Well, uh, oh, thanks, you. Good morning. Thanks, Todd. You're, you're so reliable. I appreciate that. Really, seriously. Um, all right, so this morning, as Maria mentioned, we are wrapping up our sermon series in the book of Esther, and uh, hence the, the, the title that will be on the screen behind me of Epilogue Now. Yes, that is a play on the, the, the movie title Apocalypse Now, but it's much better news than that, don't worry. Um, I tell you what, like, I think this is actually hands down my favorite sermon series we've done at a chur- as a church. And over, it's been over six years worth of sermon series, and I have... I, my, my goal this morning was to try and summarize and say, like, okay, here are the, the primary takeaways and the primary reasons why this has felt like such a, a significant sermon series to me, and I think for, for many of you as well. And I can't even tell you how hard it was to cut those down. I feel like there were probably 50 different reasons we could have talked about this morning, because even though this is one narrative, one story about God's people in one place, in one period of history, the the implications and the, the, the opportunities to resonate and connect with this narrative and this story are so many, and, and, and deceptively so. And so I'm just going to talk about four this morning, four reasons why this has been my favorite sermon series, and four, so four takeaways that we can uh, really appreciate this. So if, if you're just joining us this morning and you're like, oh great, I missed the entire sermon series, I'm going to summarize all of it in this one sermon. Not even close. And you're like, great, we'll be here through Thursday then. Um, We're not going to be here through Thursday. We're not even going to be here through tomorrow. So um, also, this will probably be a little bit shorter of a sermon, but now that I've said that, it probably won't be. Um, uh, In which case, I'm trying to kind of afford a little bit more time during the Q&A. So if you have questions not just about this passage... Uh, or you maybe you have some questions that you like, like nagging at you and like stuck in your craw from a previous sermon or, or a different part of the story or the narrative. Feel free to ask those as well. So here's our first takeaway. I've so appreciated the fact that the, the way that Esther has helped us to see and appreciate that God's providence is ever present. That God's providence is ever present. I know it's cliche. When we say things like, God works in mysterious ways, I know it's cliche, but it's also true. We say, and excitedly so, that's God when we're talking about, or we see Moses parting the Red Sea in the book of Exodus, or the walls of Jericho fall down. We love to see and and to say, that's God at work when we see him doing some kind of a supernatural intervention or or performing a miracle to, to rescue God's people or to heal God's people in their brokenness. But what about when God seems to allow defeat or failure? Right? We, we've been talking about Esther where, where God has been ever-present even though he is silent in the book of Esther. Like He's not even mentioned. And yet, we have difficulty saying that's God when King Xerxes is drunk and he freaks out on his wife Vashti for not coming at his beck and call. And rather than going to ask her, hey, what's going on? What did I do wrong? Am I sleeping on the couch tonight? He goes to his advisors who have their own agenda, who give him the worst advice on the planet for the thing that they're worried about. It's kind of like, like they did the equivalent of um, tweeting, I don't care what anybody thinks. Right? Well, then why did you tweet that? Like, you want everybody to know that you don't care about it. This is the equivalent. It's just, it's foolish. And God's in that. Do we say 
That's God when an orphaned exile wins the throne because she sexually outperforms hundred of the Persian Empire's most beautiful versions. By the way, again, if you are just coming for this sermon series, there is some context and background to that, okay? Just FYI. But God was in that too. What about events that are unfolding in our world in real time? Did, did we say or have we said, that's God when Russia invaded Ukraine? Here's one that like, I'm, I'm, I'm bound to like, not make anybody happy with. On January 6th of 2021, yeah, yeah, I heard this eye. Yeah, right? On January 6th of 2021, there were, in protest and a, in a, a violent uh, attack on the Capitol building in D.C., and in an event that is going to haunt our politics as a country ever since, and will for a while, I'm sure, you saw, unironically, side by side, crosses raised and gallows built. Side by side. Unironically. And, and people who were storming the Capitol, were citing Jesus and using his name to authorize something that Jesus would never approve of. Was God in that? Well, some people very much believe so, and they also believed that he was authorizing it. And that is not the same thing as God being present in everything. When we, when we use God's name to authorize something that he does not approve, we take great risk well, since we know that we, don't, that we can't know that he would approve or not, and probably would not, then we take great risk of actually blaspheming and sinning against God by attaching his name to something he would find abhorrent. My point is this. To say that God is, his providence is ever present is to say that we can't say, thank God for providence, without being able to see that that's God in all circumstances. We can't say thank God for providence without being able to see that's God in every and all circumstances and not just the happy ones, also the wicked and evil ones. To say he's present does not mean he has the moral responsibility. It means that we have to take responsibility for it when we do that. But he is still there and he can still redeem it and he can still use it. And that is incredible because that takes a big God. And we can say that because God's silence does not imply his absence. It amplifies his presence. Second big takeaway here is that God's redemptive story expands in exile. His redemptive story expands in exile. Take a look. I'm going to read a few verses here side by side. Take a look at chapter 9, verse 22 that Maria read. It says, As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Okay, you notice the underlined portion? Now let's read from Jeremiah, sorry, Isaiah 61, verse 3. It says, to grant to those, these are, this is God speaking through his prophet Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah and then Jeremiah, that's why I keep saying Jeremiah. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. By the way, this, this language here, this underlying, is part of the reason why Mordecai is, is his, his being clothed in the royal robes and paraded again. Like That's why this is ending in Esther's, because it is evoking imagery from Isaiah and also Jeremiah 31, verse 13, which says, I will turn their mourning into joy, 
I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. If we go to verses 30 and 31, it says that letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that, the, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 19 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Why did we just read all of that in a row? Because I'm trying to show you that these three prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah, are all proclaiming to God's people before they go into exile and while they're in exile, in Zechariah's case, they're saying these, that God is going to deliver you from exile, that you will not be there forever. They are promises about their, God's people returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple, and Esther is applying them to God's people in exile now. Before, before they're back, before they've returned, before the temple is rebuilt. Why? Two reasons. One, the author is wanting us to see that Esther, which is all about the rescue of God's people in exile, is having a role in initially or partially fulfilling these prophecies. In other words, the things that, that were talked about by the prophets are, are actually starting to happen now, and even more importantly for us, in number, the second reason is this. Esther dares to suggest that redemption will entail something much bigger than anyone expected. That redemption and God's end goal, his ultimate promise, is not just about regaining the promised land. It's actually about the restoration of the entire universe, the cosmos, all of creation itself. And the exile is actually part of it. And exile is actually seeding creation with God's long, even greater, even more long-term historical redemption. Check this out. This is not in the text. This is just actually in history. Synagogues, okay? Synagogues are actually an, in, an, an innovation of the diaspora. In other words, because God's people in Old Testament times were scattered throughout the Persian Empire and then the Roman Empire, they started synagogues or places of worship, so that they could gather to hear God's word in community and to worship God. That is because God's people are in exile, as we're reading about in Esther. In the book of Acts in the New Testament, those same synagogues become the, for lack of a better term, the forward operating bases, where Paul, when he is planting churches across the Mediterranean, in every city, the synagogue is his first stop. It's actually, I don't know, tenderizing or, or marinating a community in God, with God's people before churches start being planted. Not only that, but check this out. Synagogues and the way that they worship as a result of being in exile are also the pattern for our worship now. What we're doing here this morning and the way that the church has traditionally worshipped together for the last 2,000-ish years. If you don't believe me, take, take a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. 
This verse is commonly looked to as this is the, the first picture of what we have after Jesus' resurrection of how God's people in the New Testament era come together and worship. And it says that they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, notice the definite article, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Guess what? If you replace apostles with elders or rabbis teaching, that is exactly what God's people did in synagogues throughout exile. We are actually standing in the stream of history and what we are doing now this morning, and not just what we're doing, but how we're doing it, was shaped by the events of Esther. That's really cool, for lack of a more theological term. My point is this. The scattering of God's people is not an interruption to God's plan. It's actually intrinsic to it. If you read the book of Acts, the church spreads primarily because it begins to be persecuted as a minority in a given place. That's the norm. Not only that, but if you read the epistles through this lens, you will realize that, the, that every, like all of the apostles, all of the 12 disciples, and, and plus Paul, they all viewed the, the place of God's people in history going forward as in exile. This is actually normative for us. It's not a threat. It's an opportunity. And the way that God loves his people and the way he weaves his redemptive story through in, in the midst of and through exile is that every time God's people are exiled, his redemption grows and deepens. Sum up. Mark Sayers has this great quote. He says many times in many places that crisis precedes renewal. If that's the case, and it's, he's right, because that's the pattern in Scripture, if that's the case, then exile seeds revival. Exile seeds revival. Okay, reason number three. See, we're trucking along here. This is, good. this is a good pace. God's grace is experienced through ordinary and regular Habitual hospitality. In fact, I should have said habitual hospitality on the slide. That's even better. We see this as it is inaugurated in the festival of Purim. Um, and, and there are three elements to this that are, that, are, that are definitely in the text, but there's also like understanding how uh, Judaism has celebrated Purim since the events of Esther is fascinating and beautiful. And there are three elements to it. The first is this. It's laughter in the face of all odds. Like, Laughter in the face of extinction and danger. Laughter in the face of persecution. Laughter against all odds. Purim started, and starts still today, for those who celebrate it, with a reading of the book of Esther from start to finish. Now, it's, I've mentioned before that the genre that is the book of Esther, literary, literarily speaking, is uh, the best description is historical carnivalesque. Historical carnivalesque. Um, I say that because the, the way it's written, it is intended to cause you to laugh. It is, it's supposed to be funny. I know I'm Presbyterian, and that's like kind of an oxymoron to say from, while preaching, but my, my point is this. Like even in the, the, the graphic that Danny created for the sermon series, he, this is why he uh, used uh, Brazilian carnival colors and texture. Thank you. You read my mind, Curtis. Um, he used that, that color and texture and to bring it in to the, the image because that is exactly the, the, 
the mood and the vibe during the reading of Esther. In fact, uh, kind of like when you go to a baseball game or a football game, you like they have the wave and they have, I, man, Denver Broncos fans are particularly intense about their chants. I mean, you know that's a liturgy, right? Okay, cool. That's a different sermon. I'll save it for later. Don't worry. Um, they would have the same thing while reading Esther. They'd like wave flags, red flags, whenever uh, Mordecai's name was, was, was mentioned. And they would boo and hiss whenever Haman, uh, his name is, is said. And that's because the King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus and, and Haman, like they're meant to be laughed at. They're cartoonish, right? Like they're not meant to be seen soberly. We are supposed to laugh at their expense because the way they are described in Esther, it is intended to reflect their powerlessness. To laugh in the face of powerlessness is to actually tr entrust yourself to a greater power that, has, that puts that one to shame. Right? Like, here's the best example. I, it kind of drives me crazy anytime, and thank, this is not anybody at the table, thank God, this is great, one of the freeing things of doing this in Boulder County, um, is the arguments Christians have every year of whether or not we should celebrate Halloween, Right? Or, or do a harvest party instead. I'm fighting so hard right now. Um, we don't celebrate Halloween. We don't celebrate Halloween. We dress up in costumes and we laugh at the forces of evil and demonic spirits and everything at Halloween. Kids dress up as those things. Why? Because they're dumb. Because they're, not kids, the demons. <laughs> Sorry. Man, those pre... Pronouns, super important. Um, kids are not dumb. The spirits are, are completely powerless in the face of the resurrection of Christ. They have no power over us. We should mock them. We should dress our kids up in them. You know why? Because they are harmless. That's why we laugh at Haman, because despite his, his, his greatest attempts and, and, and leveraging all of the power of the Persian Empire, he was still impotent in the face of God's rescue. But we don't just laugh at others, we also laugh at ourselves. Mordecai and Esther teach us by their example to laugh at ourselves because of the sheer unlikeliness and also unlikability of who they are in this story. They are ridiculous and we should see ourselves through that lens too. We should, see, we should treat ourselves and see ourselves unseriously. Right? It's even at the very end of Esther, like as if, <laughs> like even in the midst of like this weird kind of it kind of breaks in from nowhere, doesn't it? Like it's talking about Esther and Mordecai and the, and the Feast of Purim. And then finally in, verse, in chapter 10, which is only three verses long, it's all about Mordecai. And in verse 3 it says, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. You, it, it's kind of, um, you, it's easy to miss in here because it says, he was popular with the multitude of his brothers. That says he was popular with most of them. Wait. So second only to the emperor and great among the Jews, but only popular with some of them. Why in the world? Well, like, what is the purpose of that? It's a comedic jab. It's reminding God's people that even, even in the midst of our rescue, even as we celebrate this, God has rescued us, but our shenanigans yet continue for a time. And oh, is that not true? I already talked about January 6th, so you can see how, how we should not think of ourselves as like, wow, we're so awesome. God rescued us, therefore we're amazing. 
No, God rescued us despite ourselves, not because of ourselves. So that's the first element. The second element is the giving of gifts at Purim. And there's, it's in two directions. It's between family and friends, and it's also gifts to the poor. But this, this is not just this kind of generic celebration. It's not just kind of like the giving of gifts that happens like on a birthday or, or, or something like that, right? It's, do you remember, if you remember last week, we really focused on how there's this refrain in, in the narrative of, of the Jews not laying their hands on the plunder, They didn't lay their hands on the plunder for reasons we talked about last week, but also because they didn't need it. It was a statement of faith. It was a statement and a a confidence in God's providence to provide for them such that they didn't need to resort to violence to attain it, that God would bring it, and all they had to do was receive it. And so exchanging and giving gifts to the poor is, yes, an act of celebration, but it's also an act of trust and faith in God's providence and a celebration that, that, they, that we know God will continue in the future, now and forever, in his providence toward his people. Third element, this is my personal favorite, um, is feasting and excessive drinking. I'm very serious about this. Um, it's, it's, it's ridiculous how much alcohol is consumed in Purim. Um, the Babylonian Talmud uh, is kind of the equivalent of a Jewish commentary. It's a collection of, of, of commentary from different Jewish rabbis around the middle of the fourth century. And in the Babylonian Talmud, it says this about Purim. It says, one is obligated to drink on Purim until one cannot distinguish between Arur, uh, sorry, Arur Haman, which means cursed is Haman, and Baruch Mordecai, which means blessed is Mordecai. You are obligated to drink until you cannot hear or tell the difference between those two statements. Do not blame me for future celebrations, right? The point of this is this, is, is like, you can let your guard down. God's protection, his providence invites your feasting because you're safe to do so. You don't even have to have your wits about you because God's got you. Celebration that is rooted in deep truth and not just mere sustenance, but in something that is greater than ourselves, it cultivates a deep and lasting joy in any circumstance. And when we get that, we understand also that feasting is this this beautiful, humanizing act of defiance that points to a significance, that points to a reality that is greater than just what we experience. That even if we don't feel God's protection and providence, we can trust that it's true. That is amazing. I got one more, and then we'll, ju- we'll jump into the Q&A, so definitely send those in. But the fourth is almost a, a summary and kind of the, the intersection of the Venn diagram of the first three in a lot of ways, and that is this, that worship is participation in God's rescue then and now. Worship is participation in God's rescue then and now. This is so cool. There are eight feasts in the Old Testament. There are eight. The first seven are given in the book of Leviticus. God inaugurates it himself specifically for his people, to his people, through Moses. And they are all feasts that celebrate and and commemorate and, and remember God's faithfulness to his people. And they are Throughout the year, along with the agricultural calendar, they kind of fall in line with that, and they're regular reminders of God's love and grace. 
Purim is the eighth. And Purim is the only one that God does not himself inaugurate directly for and to his people. It says that Esther and Mordecai do. But if you understand, as we've been talking about this entire time, that God's silence does not mean he is absent, this, it is implied that this is how God works in and through his people in the church and through tradition. You see, and it's not just, oh, this is cool, God did this too, and now we, you know, we can celebrate that. But the way that feasts function in the Old Testament and the way that they function for Israel is very different from the way that we typically look at them, right? We, we look at holidays, right, as, you know, Thanksgiving is, is coming up. We think about this as an opportunity to reflect, right, to remember what we are thankful for, to remember and be thankful for specific people. It could be specific events that the previous year that God has brought us through, right? But where, where the Old Testament what the Old Testament says is different about feast than what we normally consider is this, is that it's not just commemorating and celebrating, it's also participating. You're participating in the event the feast is commemorating. In other words, on Yom Kippur, on, when, during the, on the Day of Atonement, when, when Israel would get together, then they would remember um, uh, God's sacrifice of the, of, sorry, God's deliverance of, of God's people from Egypt and, and, the, uh, and Passover, Israel celebrating that did not just think that they were remembering it. They actually saw the veils of time parting and the past coming into the present. That they were somehow unified in the act of feasting with the people who went through it way back then. That's why Hebrews talks about this great cloud of witnesses we have. When we celebrate, when we worship, we are participating in God's rescue, past, present, and future. If it weren't, it'd just be a party. So worship without participation and celebration is just a party. You're doing it right now. In fact, when we, think, when, we, when we talk about Purim being about God's rescue of his people in exile, and we make the time and, and prioritize the Sabbath for worship and come together and pass the peace, we are actually participating in something that Esther is writing about both back then and in an anticipation sense of presently. I guess a good way of saying this is that hospitality, if a hospitality apprehends grace even as we extend it, then worship participates in God's rescue even as we celebrate it. And so we are Esther's epilogue. Isn't that cool? I don't know what it is that you brought with you this morning, like what it is that you came in from. I know what you came into is God's rescue. And you're part of a bigger story, and that doesn't, that doesn't make you less special. That actually makes you something more than just your experience and circumstances, and that's really, really good news. So let's see what questions we have this morning. All right, we got a couple so far. The message today makes me want to learn more about the history you shared. Can you recommend a resource that's easily digestible? Yes, actually. Um, I'll recommend... Oh, man. I'm trying to remember... Okay, two of them. One, I've, I've quoted her repeatedly throughout this, a, a commentator by the name of Dr. Uh, Karen Jobes. She wrote an NIV application commentary that's fantastic. It's very accessible. If you're a little bit more like, man, I, I want to like really nerd out on this stuff, 
It's an accessible nerding out. It's, the, it's beautiful. It's the best of both worlds, right? Um, the, the other book I would recommend is, um, I think it's, it's, it's by a, a Rabbi David uh, Foreman. Uh, it's called The Queen You Thought You Knew. And um, he is a, he's a rabbi, so he's not you know, a Christian, so he's not looking at this through the lens of the gospel, but the, the history and the, the Jewish tradition that he talks about through this lens, beautiful lens of narrative is incredible. I highly recommend it. So definitely check out those two, and if you want a link or you can't find it, please let me know. I'm happy to send it to you. Um, all right, next question. How should we react to providence in regard to financial provisions? If I was spared from financial loss or granted financial gain, I often struggle with what my attitude should be since I don't want to associate finances with favor? Very good question. How should we react to providence in regard to financial provisions? Gratitude. I think in our... I, I so appreciate the, the, the posture and the attitude of not wanting your attitude to be shaped and associating finances with favor, like you're doing well financially, God loves you, you're not doing well financially, it's your own fault. Like, now, what if we just saw God as present in all of it? And his provision is maybe in a lot of ways, as we conf- said in the confession this morning, it's often not in the means and ways that we expect. You know what? This church is part of that provision. It may, may be part of God's provision and goodness to us is in the midst of uh, a, a culture where we are wont to depend on ourselves and our self-sufficiency for finances, it might be a gift that God allows, that God forces us to depend on and ask for help from people when we typically don't ask for help. That might be part of God's provision. It may just happen in ways that we are, we're not looking for and don't realize we need at the time. That is not to say, like, I want to be careful because, like, that's not to say that, like, oh, this is because you, you, you suck at like, asking for help. No, it's just God provides through a variety of means. And he's present whether it's obvious to us that he is or not. That is the, that is the lesson of Esther. So, good question. i uh, got another one here. I've often felt sad not to have the regular rhythm of feasts and festivals that are celebrated in the Jewish faith. Are we in the Western church missing out by not having these specific dedicated times to focus on different aspects of God's character and story? How do we make more space for celebratory worship? Man, I want to I write a book on this one. Um, let me read this again. I've often felt sad not to have the regular rhythm of feasts and festivals that are celebrated in the Jewish faith. Are we in the Western church missing out by not having these specific dedicated times to focus on different aspects of God's character and story? Yes, in many ways, but also not. It's a yes and no answer to this question because, yeah, there's something really beautiful on that, and I think that we could give a lot more time and attention to it, but we, it's not like as Christians we don't have resources for that. Like this is our Old Testament too, and we have new rhythms that are where the Old Testament feasts are fulfilled in Christ. That's why we do Advent. We don't do, I don't preach Christmas sermons in December every year. We preach Advent sermons. Nobody laughed because nobody knows the difference between the two. Cool. (laughs) Advent is anticipation. It is waiting for God and waiting for the, the Messiah. We don't talk about the gift of Christmas until Christmas, until Christmas Eve. And then, yeah, we celebrate, but it is made more potent by our longing, by the cultivation of our 
our hunger for God's Messiah. And we, we, we do that during Advent. Same thing with, um, uh, with Lent every year leading up to Easter. Like, we have these resources, and they're beautiful. And we're, you know, Danny and I talk about all the time about how we want to kind of be a little bit more intentional about that as a church. So maybe we will hopefully have some opportunity to do so this year. Um, bottom line on that, this is our tradition too, and we can absolutely delve, di- delve deep into this to draw those resources out and be thankful for it. There's nothing stopping us. So, all right, on that note, that was the last of the questions. Man, I'm really, honestly, I'm really sad to be ending, <laughs> ending our series in Esther. I'm just like, I want more of this. It's, so, it's been so good. Um, the story and, and the, this, this aspect of feasting that I was just describing about how we are participating in something is actually a huge part of what is happening in communion. Because we now, we don't just feast eight times a year, we feast every single Sunday, every single Sabbath. And the same thing is happening. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, which was, which was shortly before, pa- no, it was Passover, yes, is on Passover, they're celebrating. And so he's saying, when he says, he takes the bread and he breaks it, he says, this is my body, is broken for you. He's saying, I am the Passover lamb. I am the Passover lamb. Likewise, he takes the wine and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant, is given for the remission of sins. He's saying, I am, it is my blood that is not smeared on the door jam, but is smeared on the side of a cross for you. He says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. Proclamation in Scripture is a participation in the thing that you are proclaiming. We are participating in God's rescue in and through Christ on the cross every time you take communion. That is incredible. You're participating with a great cloud of witnesses that join you in that as we all proclaim that this is God's doing. Our rescue is God's doing, not ours, because of his provision. If that is even remotely your hope, or you got goosebumps like I did just saying it, never mind hearing it, then then this table is for you. This feast is for you. Imbibe, enjoy, celebrate, rejoice, because it is set by Christ himself. We celebrate communion family style. So as soon as there are eight or ten of you up here during, uh, while, while they're leading us in, in praise, uh, we'll take the elements together. We'll look each other in the eye and remember that we are family, and we are family brought together by the cross. So if that's your hope, welcome. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Um, too often we see the regular, frequent, weekly celebration of of what you've done on our behalf as rote or boring because of how frequently we do it. But Lord, this is every single week is a participation in the the rescue that you have have inaugurated. So Lord, uh, renew our hearts, renew our minds, restore our souls, empower our hands to be to be your body in and through our communities. Lord, use your love to fuel it, not not our self-sufficiency, because we have none. 
Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.